0: Snuff, a short horror story, by Stephen Shorter. Letter number one. I am what you might call a sick bastard. I've been called a lot of other things. There were some very colorful and original curses used by people writing to the local paper shortly after my arrest. I won't repeat them here. Not because I'm a prude or anything, god no but the governor screens all my contact with the outside world. Inordinate use of expletives accomplishes only the wastage of my tightly controlled stationery and attracts undue attention, both to myself and to you. If you wish to continue this correspondence, I suggest we attempt to keep to the facts. What you do with the information I provide to you, whether it finds its way into the public domain, well, that's down to you, isn't it? So, the facts police psychologists who interviewed me after the incident slapped me with a good number of grand multi labels many of which included the word obsessive but i generally prefer to consider myself a collector and connoisseur of pornography i love the human form the way that it moves and the way that it responds to pleasure from the high-definition goose pimples of modern, big-budget productions, through to amateur still images of dreadlocked hippies with their breasts exposed dating back to the 60s, I lust after flesh. Flesh haunts my dreams and my waking imagination, flesh and flesh on flesh. One body responding to another, in the way that one interstellar body can affect the surface of a neighbor with its gravitational pull. I can name adult film stars the way others might be able to list famous actors. If you've ever been on any of the big web image boards and seen someone respond to a source request on a skin flick, there's a good chance you've seen my work. It's gotten to the point where I tend not to find pornography sexually stimulating anymore. Instead, I regard each new video or picture with a sort of fascination a gallery owner might hold for new canvases. You may have read that at the time of my arrest, some 15,000 video cassettes, 12,000 DVDs, six laptops, and eight external hard drives were seized from my home. Sex, and specifically renderings of sex, became my life from about the age of 15. Sometimes, I lie in the dark in my little cell and chuckle at the thought of some overworked police detective having to sift through the product of half a lifetime of collecting poor guy had to sit there for hours, until the very idea of sex became a monotonous, pneumatic, repetitive beat behind his eyes, flesh on flesh slapping away for hours and hours and hours. I like to think I got the last laugh there. What really sunk my defense in court were the more esoteric videos among my possessions. Sometimes art takes us to strange and obscene places specifically places deemed illegal by the legislature of West Virginia. Again, the specifics of where my collection crossed the blurry line between taboo and criminal is a topic I'm reluctant to discuss. Parts might be considered an acquired taste, and I'm not sure how much of its depth the police chose to plumb before I was charged. So, with regards to that, we can conclude that I was found to be in possession of some materials that uptight, white, upper-middle-class men at one point decided were abnormal. Let's just let it gather dust in their archives and move on to the situation at hand, shall we? I bought the snuff tape from Mr. Crispin of Crispin's Home Video. It's a little rental place in town. When bust in 06, or 07, thanks to the advent of that most efficient porn-sharing service, the internet. But old Chris kept running his business out of his damp little apartment above the storefront. He made his living by selling cheap amateur porn, smuggled in from Mexico. Stuff you'd have a hard time finding elsewhere. Folks used to say he sold darker shit. Shit with animals and... wars. Seems odd that he never tried to push any of that on me, but he did blow his brains out when the cops arrived to raid his apartment before my trial. That's usually a pretty surefire sign of guilt, so I guess there must have been some truth in it. But I digress. Old Chris met me at the door that morning wearing the same sweaty t-shirt I'd been wearing on my last visit two weeks prior. It was late May, insects were screaming, their drill worse scream, and he was squinting at me with his sunken yellow eyes. Bry, he grunted. Come in. He pulled open the door and shuffled his corpulent frame back into the gloom of the derelict store. He had a gun in his hands—a little twenty-two rifle with a missing magazine, which he'd taken a hacksaw to in order to lend it a little more menace—and he tucked this behind the dust-furred counter as he passed up a short flight of stairs and inside his apartment. I had to watch where I stepped as he'd often let his pet ferrets run around inside the pugnant tunnels and caverns formed by the discarded pizza cartons which carpeted the TV room. He crossed to a plastic-covered bed and pulled a paper bag from underneath it. What is it? I asked. It's something you'll like. He smiled a gap-toothed smile at me. I took the bag and opened it. The tape looked brand new, but the label was blank. I crooked an eyebrow at him. I have to say, I was curious. Crisp had never tried to con me out of money before. I mean, I knew exactly where he lived. But this sudden air of mystery was new to me. Normally, he was very matter-of-fact about what his movies contained or whom they starred. How much, I asked. Seventy. Are you freaking kidding me? No. But Bri, trust me, man, this is some serious shit. Some serious, messed-up shit. How messed are we talking? Messed. Okay, how about this? I said. I give you twenty now and another twenty after I watch it if I think it was worth coming down here. Thirty thirty, he said. We shook, I passed him my money, and took the tape home with me. So I got home and folded myself in the armchair which sat in the corner of my mom's old bedroom. It was the attic room, and since she died I had tried to steer clear of it. I felt an empty pang in my life a sense of unfulfilled potential every time I went up there. But I had found that my VCR had stopped working a few days beforehand, and the only spare one was fitted into the boxy old television beside the skeletal iron bed frame. She once held a dying old woman in that painful limbo between truly living and medically dead. Sorry, Mom, I muttered, half-grinning as I pushed the video into her TV and hit play. I wasn't smiling for long. Editor's note. The first letter abruptly ends here. We have been unable to find and indeed dispute the existence of another copy of the tape mentioned our correspondence with name redacted. However, through our understandably anonymous contacts within the West Virginian police, we were able to acquire a transcript of the events depicted in the film. We include it here for your reference. The Tape. Evidence Locker B12, Item Serial 61-32B-12 Recording filmed using a handheld camera. timestamp does not appear to be accurate as it simply reads 00-00-00-00-00 throughout. The beginning of the tape takes place in an unidentified storage room. The camera briefly pans over cluttered shelves, stacked high with boxes stamped with blue serial numbers, then settles on a filing cabinet. A hand belonging to the unknown filmmaker, apparently of African-American origin, reaches out and gently pulls open the drawer. This, too, bears a number stamp, number 000-095. It is dark, and the picture quality prevents us from seeing the interior. Cameraman, here they are. Here are my girls, in all their glory. The cameraman closes the drawer. We pan to reveal a woman since identified as missing high school student Karen Chabon. She is dressed in a long overcoat and high-heeled shoes and is wearing heavy makeup. She sways slightly as though intoxicated. The cameraman steadies her with a hand at her elbow. Quiet piano music, a melody as yet unidentified, is playing from somewhere nearby. Cameraman. You want to be one of my girls, baby? Chabon. Mmm. The cameraman extends a hand and caresses Chabon's cheek. Chabon appears to be smiling, though the lighting in the shot is poor and is hard to tell. The cameraman then turns and locks the drawer before once again training the camera on Chabon. Cameraman. I want you to be one of my girls. You're beautiful. You're going to live forever. Chabon. Yeah? Yeah? Cameraman, yeah. There's an uncomfortable silence lasting approximately five seconds. The camera zooms in on Chabon's face and she laughs nervously. Then the shot cuts to black abruptly. Static. A series of strange ambient sounds the burbling of a stream, the cries of crows. Then a 12-second shot of a muddy path carpeted with leaves as a cameraman, there is no indication as to whether or not this is the same individual as in the rest of the video, follows it. At one point, they pan the camera around themselves, revealing that they are alone in a large area of woodland, with trees stretching off into the visible distance on all sides. Everything is an eerie red-brown color. It is clearly the fall season. After 12 seconds, the cameraman comes abruptly to a halt crows can be heard, again. The shot pans upwards slowly, following the bough of a large tree. The calling of the crows intensifies as the shot settles on a pair of bare, human feet, decayed to muscle and bone in places. Then the cameraman continues to pan upwards, revealing bare legs bound tight against the tree with barbed wire. There are no crows in sight, either close to the body or on the surrounding trees, but the shrieking of the birds grows so loud that the audio begins to distort As this happens, the image seems to warp, and we abruptly cut to static. The entire sequence lasts fourteen and a half seconds. Static. Another shot, this time from above a forest canopy. The foliage is a lush green, indicating that this sequence took place at a different time of year to the previous one. The camera sways a little, revealing that the cameraman is standing on a balcony overlooking the tree line. At the distant edge of the shot, we see a rusting water tower. The cameraman turns and slides open a patio door. This particular shot appears to have been doctored as it cuts abruptly before the focus of the camera adjusts to show the cameraman's reflection in the glass. The cameraman is now standing inside a sparsely furnished room with a single mattress on the floor. Industrial lighting like the kind used during nighttime road maintenance is set up in the corners of the room. Enormous shadows linger on the walls. Chabon enters through a door on the far side of the room, still wearing the trench coat and high heels. Cameraman, lock it. Chabon complies, an apparently bemused smile on her face. Cameraman, give me the key. Again, Chabon does as she's told. There's a long, uncomfortable silence lasting around eight seconds. Chabon hesitates, then reaches up and unbuttons the coat. It falls to the ground, revealing that she is naked underneath. The cameraman approaches Chabon. Chabon, do you like me like this? Silence. Then, a blur of movement so sudden that the camera focus struggles to keep up. Chabon screams and falls. The cameraman still holding the camera before him brandishes a claw hammer, which glistens red. Chabon clutches at her face as the cameraman slashes down at her repeatedly. The hammer attack is as sustained as it is brief, lasting around four seconds. Most of it is an unfocused blur. The cameraman stands up and zooms in on Chabon's injuries, breathing heavily. The sound of classical music and the cawing of crows can be heard. After surveying the body, the cameraman then turns and kicks over one of the lamps. Cameraman. Bitch. Fucking bitch. The cameraman continues to lash out at the furnishings and doors with his hammer, screaming incoherently. The sound of crows and music grows louder and louder until the video cuts to black. A mock credit sequence begins to roll. The jaunty piano music plays throughout, though the crow sounds have disappeared. The credits simply cite Mr. Crows as cameraman and director. The sequence ends with the words starring Karen Chabon as herself. These words, along with the music, fade out as we see the final sequence of the tape, a 30-second surveillance-style shot of Karen Chabon waiting for a bus outside her high school, apparently months before her death. She seems unaware that she's being recorded. Letter number two. Karen Chabon. Light of my life, fire of my loins. After everyone was done kicking the shit out of me in high school, she dabbed dab the cuts and bruises with salt water and read Lolita to me in the shadow of the elm on the edge of the school grounds. In a way... I came to keenly anticipate gym class on a Friday afternoon. The pain and the humiliation in the locker room, and then... her. I suppose you might call it a pathetic existence, but I think that those who spend their lives in darkness tend to latch on to the smallest kindnesses. An embrace, a kiss, will mean a lot more to a person who has absolutely nothing. Her grades were poor, and her promiscuity amongst the local boys earned her the unfortunate moniker of Town Bicycle, but she was always happy. And for all the mudslinging in our small town, sometimes more a murder of crows than a community, she was the kindest human being I knew. But things turned bad for her. Her dad killed himself and left her with a level of debts you don't usually see outside of Lifetime Movies. She started seeing this guy Chet Who was on the school's wrestling team And whose dad was rich as fuck Rumors got around that he was mistreating her And I went to confront him outside school one day Again Hindsight is a beautiful thing And I had no proof of this But even still The guy was a steroid-fueled psychopath And by this point I was convinced That I was in love with Karen So you can guess how well that went for me While I was in the hospital with a broken collarbone, Chet got himself coked up and wrapped his dad's car around a tree. I exchanged letters with Karen for a time. She told me not to worry about her and that she'd found a way to pay the bills. I later found out that she'd turned to selling sex. I confronted her about it. I mean, I was angry and I didn't understand any of it, but she just brushed it off, saying, I'm just doing what I always do. Only this time I'm charging for it. And that was the last letter I received from her. A few days after I was due to be released from hospital, she was declared missing. But hey, why should the cops or the state authorities care too much? She had no family or friends. It's just a whore, right? Just another whore. Just another whore. I dropped out of school after that. (laughs) Couldn't hack it without her there. I stopped watching television, stopped going outside. Love broke me, and so I renounced it. (laughs) Seeing that tape. Seeing her again. I must have watched her die a hundred times. Rewinding and crying out at each blow again and again. Again. Flesh on flesh. Metal on bone. The image burned me. I wanted to be there. To have held her as she'd held me, even if I couldn't have saved her. I wanted... Excuse my rambling. I tend to get caught up in the memory. The point is, seeing that video left me with a chasm inside my chest. I felt pain, anguish, and then empty. Then, into the hollow of my chest, there tripped something else. A cold rage. I rewound and watched it again from the beginning. This man had evidently taken great care to remain anonymous, and the locations could have been anywhere. I mean, a cluttered storeroom? A forest? For all, I knew he could have taken Karen across the border into Canada, or, heck, maybe even flown her to Europe. I watched it again and again. The rage bubbling inside me and I, unfamiliar with and frightened at the prospect of feeling emotion over a sequence of images in a screen, began to shake. And just then, as I was teetering on the brink of putting my foot through the screen, I saw it. Half visible in the flickering margins of the picture, there stood the water tower. My eyes widened, and I hurried down to the basement, fished out the box of photo albums, and returned to my mother's room. With trembling hands, I flipped through the collections one by one until I found the photographs of our trip to Earpsville. Being that my high school catered to a dying town in West Virginia, funding for things like school trips was practically nil. Fortunately for us, the next town over had a small Civil War cemetery on its outskirts, which we'd visit once a year, every year, with our history class. There, behind the graveyard, brooded a dark, windswept tree line, and beyond the trees there stood a rusting water tower, which some local hippie wannabe had daubed with the peace symbol. I drove out to Erpsville shortly afterwards parked in the cemetery parking lot and tried to align myself using the tower. Then I struck out into the wood. It didn't take me long to find the house. It was a ghastly 60s postmodern mansion with odd dimensions to its walls and balconies which turned my stomach as I circled around it, checking the perimeter. door frames loomed large and empty, and the windows were without glass. Reefs of dead leaves piled up against walls and dry auburn stragglers skittered across the tiles like small animals frightened by my presence. Nothing lived. No insect chittered, no rat squeaked in protest at my trespass. The walls wore elaborate and vulgar graffiti-like tattoos and I found myself peering into each room as I passed it. I had brought along a little butterfly knife which my older brother had given me in one of his brief appearances between jail sentences and i held its stubby blade before me as i went the room's contents were as strangely unsettling as the house's oddly non-euclidean layout here a room packed almost floor to ceiling with stained mattresses here a room with a single chair placed at its center facing the doorway Here, a doorway which apparently opened onto a cupboard containing a bare bookshelf. Here, a filthy kitchen with a dancing mat rolled out on the tiled floor. And here, a stairwell with uneven concrete steps, which guided me to a large, loft room. I knew before I entered, of course. I knew it was the room from the video. Sure enough, though the mattress and lighting equipment were gone... There was no mistaking the open-plan bedroom which opened onto the balcony. The room was clean, surgically clean. It had been scrubbed from floor to ceiling and was completely devoid of furniture. I wandered out onto the balcony and stared at the forest. The setting sun made large orange streamers out of the thin clouds which turned an angry gray as they retreated over the hills and far away. Everything was silent. Even the sounds of the forest had dimmed below an audible level. Back inside, I retraced my steps down onto the ground floor. I sat a while upon the bottom step. I have no idea what I was expecting to find in that quiet house. That dead house out there in the woods. As I rose to leave, a sudden wind rustled leaves and other woodland detritus down the hallway and elbowed its way past me. As I went, I heard a sudden low sound just behind me. I whirled with the knife held out. The bookshelf, which stood behind the empty doorway, had swung back on rusted hinges. Behind it, a downward stairwell. A basement. It was the basement depicted in the video. The big industrial shelving held only sheets of dust, but the filing cabinets were still there. A half dozen arranged along the walls on all sides. My feet rustled among discarded clippings from movie reels and cassettes. My hand trembled as I reached for the handle of the nearest drawer, the one that the cameraman had pointed out for Karen. It slipped open silently on well-oiled runners, and inside... videotapes. Dozens of videotapes. They stood in silent, unassuming rows, with their labels bearing names like Kathy, Luis... Lucy, and Rosemary. Not one, bearing any indication as the horror I was sure they all contained. As I reached for the second drawer, a sudden noise made me turn, a footstep on the stairs. I fumbled my knife from my pocket and held it before me, and then figures were bursting through the door, screaming at me to get on my knees and to drop the knife. Flashlights whirled like crazy strobes in the gloom. A gloved hand seized me by the hair as I was dragged from the basement. The cops outside jeered as the SWAT team heaved me out into the daylight. They were everywhere, combing the tree line, photographing the building, and still more were arriving as I blinked in the sun. Crows were everywhere suddenly, hanging like black tatters from the trees and cackling down at me in their brittle voices. Their shrieking was near painful. I spotted a few cops throwing stones in an attempt to frighten them away, but the birds paid no heed and continued their vigil. One of the SWAT guys shoved me towards a waiting van. I'll spare you the details of my incarceration, the abuse, and the discomfort of jail, and instead leave you to muse, as I often do, on how the law found me. I have no idea how they knew I was coming. I speak to barely anyone anyway, and I definitely didn't tell anyone where I was going. All I can assume is that they had me under surveillance and followed me. Perhaps somewhere down the line I downloaded a bugged file or bought something from the wrong person. Now it had all caught up with me. Initially, they tried to charge me with Karen's murder, but fortunately even my state-employed third-rate lawyer could just about successfully argue that the self-identified Mr. Crows was apparently African-American, while I was a pasty West Virginian suburb tomcat not that I really blame the cops for their lazy assumption. If I were an outsider, I'd want to wash my hands of the case as fast as I could. But when a quick conviction was not forthcoming, they rooted about my property until they found something damning, and they threw me back into the darkness with all the haste afforded them by the law. Their pound of flesh, if you will. I later heard that they dug up the ditches behind the house and found bones, Nobody knows how many he killed in that manner. The cops have stopped talking to the press about it, and their investigation is ongoing, meaning all their resources are going into matching those bones up with the tapes. As far as I know, they haven't found Karen's body. Mr. Crows presumably chuckled to himself as he read about my fate in the daily newspaper of some far-off place, sipping coffee and pausing to train his camera on his next big project. And me? I sit in my cell, solitary confinement since my cellmate took a razor to my stomach last year. I shower five times a week and walk in a small outdoor cage for an hour a day, and I sit beneath a dim lamp set deep in the concrete setting, and I read Lolita and think of Karen. He's still out there, you know. I'm a freak. A sick individual if what they have to say about my pursuits are anything to go on. But he's something else. A monster come to take us from our warmth and leave us cold and alone in the darkness. He's still out there. And he will never stop. Kindest regards. Name redacted. Addendum. Lost footage. Evidence Locker B12, Item Serial 61-32B-12-B. Static. We are greeted with the final shot from the middle segment of Article 61-32B-12. Bare legs, bound tight against the tree with barbed wire. Then the camera begins to pan up again. There is no sound for the duration of the recording and the picture quality is very poor heavy burn marks suggesting an attempt to destroy the footage. The figure tied to the tree is that of a naked female with minor injuries to her torso and shoulders. We finally settle upon her face, which is unrecognizable due to the deteriorated quality of the footage and the extensive wounds to her head and neck. The shot holds in this position for a period of eight seconds, then the camera falls to the ground and rolls a few feet away from the tree before becoming wedged against a root. Half-off-screen, Karen Chabon can be seen staring up at the body in the tree, dressed in her overcoat and high heels. Her mouth is moving. Transcribers note, At the time of this report's compilation, lip-reading experts are still attempting to decipher what she is saying. She stares at the body, speaking for a period of five seconds. An unseen individual behind her, thought to be the cameraman from Article 61-32B-12, lays a gloved hand upon her shoulder. Chabon half turns and looks into the camera. She appears to force a smile. Her eyes shine with tears. Sixty one dash thirty two B dash twelve dash B abruptly ends here.